Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Of you can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, as we're traveling through Luke, slowly but surely, Luke chapter 20. In 1933, Adolf Hitler became the Chancellor of Germany, and he instituted the Third Reich and brought Nazism to its terrible reign in Europe. And what many Christians may not know is that sadly, under Hitler's leadership, the evangelical church, evangelical pastors, and evangelical Christians in Germany embraced Nazism and white supremacy. Basically, Hitler led them to believe that you're not a good Christian unless you embrace Nazism. But yet, there were a group of dissidents There were a group of pastors that resisted this. They were deeply troubled by what Hitler was doing in bringing the Third Reich to Germany. So in May of 1934, 139 delegates from the evangelical churches in Germany, the Lutheran, the Reformed, the United Churches, they met in Jemark Church, Barman. And they drafted this declaration, and the declaration was to appeal to the evangelical churches to not buy into this German Nazism. And this document is called the Theological Declaration of Barman. And and there's, there's many articles in this, but it's interesting what they wrote in Article 5. Now remember, this is when Hitler is ascending to his supremacy. And so these pastors are speaking out against the rise of totalitarianism in Nazi Germany. And so Article 5 says this. It says, We reject the false doctrine as though the state, over and beyond its special commission, should and could become the single and totalitarian order of human life thus fulfilling the church's vocation as well. Sadly, under Hitler, he meshed the church and the state together into totalitarianism and Nazism to where fidelity to the Führer, to Hitler, was more important than fidelity to Christ. And the Declaration called this totalitarianism a false doctrine that was antithetical to the gospel, was harmful to the churches in Germany. And I wonder, could this totalitarianism ever happen in America? And I don't answer that. Because I know some of you have opinions about that. Have you ever wondered how Christians interact and live in places like North Korea or Iran or Sudan under totalitarian governments? How do we as Christians interact with the government 
Is there such a thing as separation of church and state? Does the Bible even address politics and things like that? Well, as we're trekking through the Gospel of Luke, today's passage faces this issue head-on with some of the more famous words of Jesus in the Gospels. But let's just think about what's happened. Remember, we're in this section of Gospel where it's Holy Week. It's Monday or Tuesday leading up to the cross, and what has Jesus done? He's cleansed the temple. He's cleared out the money changers, and the religious leaders are coming to him saying, what type of authority do you have to do this? They're questioning his authority, and Jesus doesn't answer them. And then he tells a parable that we looked at last week about the wicked tenants that basically beat the servants and killed the beloved son. And by this time, these religious leaders are seething mad. They want to kill Jesus, but there's one problem. They don't have the legitimate authority to carry out the death penalty. That's only been given to Pontius Pilate, the governor. He can only execute the the death penalty and and sentence Jesus to the cross. And so these religious leaders are going to have to change their tactic. They're going to have to be a little bit more sneaky. So what they're going to do is they're going to try to trip up Jesus, get him to say something that might get him in trouble, get him to say something that might get him arrested. So they send spies in to basically butter up Jesus to trick him into giving a wrong answer to a highly charged political question. So let's look together at Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him, and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. That's, that's Pilate. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able, in the presence of the people, to catch him. And what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. They want to trap Jesus, and so they sent a smaller group of spies who kind of came in pretending, in verse 20, they were pretending to be sincere. Literally in the Greek is where we get our word English word hypocrite. They were playing the hypocrite. They were being hypocritical. And they used this false flattery to try to butter Jesus up and, to, and to maybe give him the wrong answer. So verse 21, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality. You, you're truly teaching the way of God. And then they ask him in verse 22 a question that puts him in a no-win situation. Is it lawful? Is it right? For us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Should we pay our taxes to Caesar or not, Jesus? Now, this puts him in a precarious situation because if he says yes, if he says yes, we should, it would make him very unpopular with the crowd. 
Because the crowd hated the Roman government. The crowd hated paying their taxes. The crowd hated being part of a pagan Roman empire. And this would mean that Jesus fully supported the Roman occupation. He would lose followers. He would immediately be unpopular with the crowd if he said, yes, it is right for us to give taxes. It would show that he was on Rome's side, not on Israel's side. But if he said no, then he would be perceived as a rebel rouser, a man that's treasonous, an insurrectionist. They could say that he's against the Roman government, that that you shouldn't pay taxes, and they, they would arrest him. But Jesus knew their craftiness. Notice what it says there in verse 23. He perceived their craftiness. It's an interesting word in the original language. That word craftiness means they'll do whatever means necessary to show cunning, to get the answer they want. They're they're willing to do whatever they need to do to trip Jesus up. And then verse 25 are probably some of the more famous words of Jesus that some people like to quote. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. Now, we need to think deeply about this because there's a lot of confusion these days about how Christians should interact with the governing authority. So this this passage really boils down to two fundamental questions. We're going to ask both these questions this morning. First question, what, what does it mean? What do I render to Caesar? What's my obligation to the governing authorities? Second question, what's my obligation to God? What should I render to God? Two burning questions. What does it mean to render under Caesar? What does it mean to render under God's? What's his? So let's ask the first question this morning. First, what is our obligation to the governing authorities? Now, Caesar is basically a a metaphor or a symbol for the governing authorities because he was the highest authority at that time. He was the Roman emperor, Caesar. Now, if you trace your Bible, not just what Jesus says here, but all throughout the scriptures, there are four primary ways that we as Christians should interact or respond or relate to the governing authorities. So let's explore those this morning. First, and this is right here in the text, and we all love this one, we should pay our taxes without grumbling or complaining. Amen, right? That's the immediate context. What does Jesus say? Hey, you need to pay your taxes. Back then, they did not like taxes. It was a heart burden for them. Because by imperial decree, every adult male had to pay the poll tax. And that tax went directly to the coffers of the Roman Empire. It didn't go to roads. It didn't go to improve their life. They thought maybe we should give our money to the local synagogue. No, it went directly to the government, just like a lot of ours does, and they did not like it. There was a saying during that time. This was what a lot of those Israelites would say back then. Taxation is no better than downright slavery. Now, We may not like all the taxes we have to pay. Nobody here, I'm sure, is really fond of the fact that there's going to be 87,000 new IRS agents roaming around the country looking for people to devour. No, I'm just joking. That's taken out of context. That's that's Satan looking for people to devour. No, we may not like the fact that we have to pay taxes. But notice what I said. Pay your taxes without grumbling or complaining. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 14-15, Do all things. Now, what's all things, Pastor Sean? What's the Greek for all things? All things. 
including taxes. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So just a basic point. When you honestly pay your taxes faithfully, you're being a good citizen and you're being a faithful Christian. Jesus just gives us no other option there. He says, render unto Caesar what's Caesar's. If you owe taxes, pay those taxes. So that's the first thing that we owe. Whether we like it or not, we pay taxes without grumbling or complaining. Second, we should pray faithfully for our governing leaders. Pray faithfully. Now Paul addresses this in 1 Timothy Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And then he limits it here in verse 2. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I find it interesting there. Why does Paul tell us to pray for our leaders? So that we will live a dignified, godly life. In other words, we want our leaders to lead in such a way that they basically leave us alone and allow us to live out our Christianity. They promote the common good, but that we can lead a quiet and peaceful life. We want them to protect our freedoms. We want to be able to practice our faith in a free society. So, I don't want you to raise your hands here because I'm going to confess a sin. I'm more often than not guilty of complaining about our leaders than praying for our leaders. I'm quick to complain. I'm less quick to get on my knees and pray for them. Regardless of who they are. Regardless of what political party they are. Regardless of what views they hold. Do you pray for your leaders? And that's not just the president, but that goes to all those that are in leadership around you. Local leaders, state leaders, those that are in governing authorities, do you pray for your leaders? So give taxes without grumbling and complaining. Pray faithfully for your leaders. Here's number three. And we're going to spend a little time on this because this gets tricky. We should submit willingly to God's ordained governing authorities. Submit. Now, I want you to turn in your Bibles real briefly with me to Romans chapter 13. So turn over to Romans chapter 13, and Paul's going to give us some information here about how we interact with the governing authorities. Remember, we're asking the big question, what's our, what's our relationship to the government? Remember, Jesus says, render unto Caesar what's Caesar. So we're asking the question, what belongs to Caesar? What are we to render to him? Besides just taxes, yes, and prayers, yes, but Paul gives it another aspect here. So Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he's the servant of God, 
an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you must also pay taxes. Oh, there's Paul echoing Jesus. Man, I thought we'd get out of that. Nope, Jesus says it, Paul says it. For the authorities are ministers of God. Pay attention to that. The authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. God has sovereignly instituted all governing authorities. God has put those in place. Proverbs 8, 15-16. By me, God says, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles all who govern justly. And so at its basic level, because God has instituted governing authorities, we should submit to the government. We should obey the law. We should live in accordance with the laws of the land, submitting to that. And if we break those laws, it's very simple. You get punished. If you break the law, the government's there to punish the, the evildoer. If you murder, if you commit a crime, you should be punished and face the law. And so Ultimately, government's there for the protection of the common good, to curb violence, to curb anarchy, to protect the citizenry from, from evil from happening so that people can be protected from evil. And, and Peter echoes, echoes the same thing. 1 Peter 2, 13-17. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Do good while you're living as a citizen in America. Now, this is tricky because... There's different definitions in our culture of what good is. And so when we do good according to the Bible, sometimes we're made fun of. Sometimes we're maligned. And oftentimes we as Christians are known more for what we're against than what we're for. Now, I'm not saying that we should not address sin. We'll talk about that in a moment. I'm not saying we shouldn't vote our conscience or we shouldn't be participatory. But oftentimes we should be known for doing good as Christians in our culture. There's a very interesting passage of Scripture. In Jeremiah 29.7, when the Israelites have been carted off into Babylonian captivity, they're far away from home, the Lord tells them how they're to live in exile. Jeremiah 29.7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. Just ask yourself a question. Do you want Sterling in northeastern Colorado to be a better place because you're a citizen here? Do you seek the welfare of where we live? Yes, you would say, I want us to be in a place where the welfare of the city is thriving because God says when you seek the welfare of the city, you're making it a better place to live. Titus 3, 1 through 2, remind them to be submissive to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. General principle. Be submissive to the governing authorities. Yet there are limitations. And oh, have we had to learn those over the past few years with COVID. 
back in May of 2020 when we as elders and deacons and everybody met, we had to make some decisions about how we were going to open up a church in defiance of Governor Polis's directives. And so historic Reformed Protestant theology has always made sure that the state doesn't overstep its bounds and that the state always allows for religious freedom. Listen to the Westminster Confession of Faith for a moment. Chapter 23, paragraph 3. This is in the Westminster Confession of Faith. It is the duty of civil magistrates to protect the church of our common Lord without giving the preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest in such a manner that all ecclesiastical persons, whatever they shall enjoy, the full, free, and unquestioned liberty of discharging every part of their sacred functions without violence or danger. And as Jesus Christ has appointed a regular government and discipline in his church, no law of any commonwealth should interfere with let or hinder the due exercise thereof among the voluntary members of any denomination of Christians according to their own possessions and belief. A lot of words there basically saying what our First Amendment says. Now, what happens if you have to defy the government? If you have to say, you know what, government, you've overstepped your bounds, I'm saying no to you. We have biblical example of that. In the early church, in the book of Acts. Acts 4, 18-20. Peter, John, the disciples, they're preaching Jesus. They're brought before the authorities. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot speak of what we've seen and we've heard. Peter and John, shut up. We are telling you, stop preaching Jesus. And what do they say? Nope. You can't stop me from preaching Jesus. I'm, I'm not going to listen to you. We can't help but speak of what we have seen and what we've heard, regardless of what you tell me. Now, they get beaten and thrown in jail for that, so they paid a price. You pay a price for civil disobedience, oftentimes. Acts 5, 27 through 29. When they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in the name, yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. There's a time and a place for us to defy the government and obey God rather than man. Martin Lloyd-Jones gives this good statement. He says this, The state must never tyrannize over my conscience. And when my conscience tells me that I am being asked to do something that contradicts my relationship with God, I listen to my conscience. You have some Old Testament examples of civil disobedience. What do the Hebrew midwives do? What did Pharaoh say to the Hebrew midwives? Kill all the firstborn Israelite boys that are born. What do the Hebrew midwives do? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to commit murder just because I've been ordered to by Pharaoh. They let them live. What happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Bow down to the idol. If you don't, you'll be thrown into the fiery furnace. What happened? We're not bowing down to the idol. They got thrown in the fiery furnace. Daniel, chapter 6. Uh, the king said, hey, you can only pray to me. You can't pray to your God. What does Daniel do? Daniel goes up to his room, opens the door where everybody can see, and prays to God. And he gets thrown into the lion's den. Now, 
There are times in the Bible where people said, I'm not going to obey the government. I'm going to obey God. Sometimes that worked out. Other times it didn't. They got punished. They got beaten. They got thrown in a lion's den. They got thrown in a fiery furnace. There are times when you have permission to not submit to the governing authorities if the government's telling you to go against your conscience and in violation of God's word. Now, what's the fourth way we should participate in the political process? Fourthly, we should participate actively in the political process. Now, I need to be careful here. We need to make a distinction between the role of the institutional church and the individual Christian. We need to be very careful here. As a church institution, our primary job is to preach the gospel administer the sacraments, disciple the nations, be a lighthouse for the gospel as a church. But yet, as an individual Christian, what is your primary responsibility as an individual Christian? Your your responsibility as an individual Christian is to live out your Christianity outside the four walls of this church, and that includes the political process. That includes voting, activism. You cannot privatize your faith and not have it impact how you live your life. Now, here's my personal opinion. It's a Sean's opinion. In a constitutional republic like we have in America right now, you can agree with me or disagree with me whether we're still in that right now, but right now, I think we should use every legal means necessary to change laws, to vote for Christian principles, to advance biblical ideas, to promote candidates who are going to advance a biblical worldview. While we, while every legal means necessary. We still live in a free nation where we should be actively involved in the process to bring about God's, God's values in the public square. Now, we need to understand the limitations of government. What can the government not do? change hearts. That's not the government's role. (laughs) Martin Lloyd-Jones makes this very insightful statement. He says this, we cannot expect too much from the state because the business of the state is mainly negative. Its main function is to control and to limit evil. The state, whether it be a monarchy, oligarchy, democracy, or any other form that you may choose can do very little positive good. And people have gotten into trouble when they think it can Ultimately, what we want, and this is the historic Protestant evangelical, especially Baptist belief, we want a free church in a free state. That's what we want, a free church in a free state. So, that was the first big question. What's our obligation to the governing authorities? Number one, pay your taxes joyfully, without grumbling. Number two, pray for your leaders. Number three, submit willingly, and there are times where you may not have to. And then be actively involved in the political process by using your Christian witness in the public square. Now, let's ask the second fundamental question. What's our obligation to the living God? What are we to render to gods? Now, we need to be very careful here. We must never see God and Caesar as equals. Jesus does tell us how we are to interact with the government, but we need to remember that God is sovereign over all things. Now, go back to Luke for a moment. 
In verse 24, what does Jesus do? He says, show me a denarius. The denarius was a coin. Whose inscription's on the denarius? They said Caesar's. Now, let me tell you what was written under Caesar's inscription. So there's a picture of him, and it said Caesar, but then it had the words in Latin, Pontiff Maximus, which means in Latin, highest priest. Highest priest. That's outright blasphemy because who's the highest of the highest? Is it Caesar? Basically, Caesar on the coin is saying, I'm the ultimate. I'm the highest of the highest. Who is Lord? Who's ultimate? It's not Caesar, but Christ. Psalm 96.10 says this, Saying among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the people with equity. The Lord reigns. This was read to open up our, our worship this morning. Jeremiah 10, 6-7. There's none like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and all the kingdoms, there is none like you. He's king of the nations. Remember when King Nebuchadnezzar was prideful and he walked up on his roof and said, look what I've done, and God humbled him and made him act like a wild animal and he started growing long hair. And Go back and read that in the book of Daniel. It's an interesting story. At the end of that time, Daniel 4, 34-35, At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are recounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say to Him, excuse me, and none can stay stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? What have you done? Now, We're thankful for the Constitution, separation of church and state. First Amendment, we're thankful for the First Amendment. Congress shall not make, or Congress shall make no law respecting establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abiding the freedom of speech. The free exercise. In the older view of interpreting the Constitution, you know what that meant? You were allowed to practice your religion. You were allowed to to talk about it in the public square. You were allowed to Freely practice your religion, what the Constitution says. You know what the new interpretation of it is? You can privately hold that religion, but you can't practice it out in the public square. Because if you practice it out in the public square, you could be perceived as intolerant or hateful or, or dangerous. So keep it private. Separation of church and state is helpful at times. It is. We don't want the government coming in and telling us how to worship. Anybody want the government coming in and telling me how I had to preach my sermons? I don't want that. Anybody want the government preventing us from worship, closing our doors down? No, we don't want that. We, we like separation of church and state, but let me just say this. While there may be separation of church and state, there is never separation of Christ and state. Jesus is Lord over all. Abraham Kuyper, he was the prime minister of Holland back in the early 1900s. Strong Christian man. This is his famous quote. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, mine. 
Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. You know, there's a lot of confusion over what Jesus says here because render unto Caesar what Caesar's, render unto God's what's God's. Some people think those are two equal spheres. So, for example, if you look at this graphic up on the screen, and I, I've borrowed this from an article by Jonathan Lehman called The Relationship of Church and State. Some people think that they're two separate things. Okay, you've got Caesar's things, politics, government, and then you've got God's things, worship, faith, church, and they're two equal things. You've got God's things, you've got Caesar's things. That's the way a lot of people think. But let me show you a different graphic, the way we should think. You've got God's things, and Caesar's things are, are part of that. They're not two equal things. It's God's things trump all, and Caesar's things fit into that. Remember when Pontius Pilate is questioning Jesus? And of course, Pontius Pilate has the quote-unquote authority to put Jesus to death on the cross. But listen to what Jesus says to him in John 19, 11. Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So what do we render the living God? What do we give God? What do we owe God? <clears throat> I said there's four things that we owe the government. What do we owe God? Let's just make it real simple. We owe God a life of unconditional worship and obedience to Him as sovereign Lord. I'm not going to give you a list of four things because that says it all. Unconditional worship and obedience to him as sovereign Lord. That's what we owe him. Unconditional obedience. No conditions asked. What did we see earlier in Luke chapter 10 verse 27? Jesus answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. What do we owe God? our heart, our soul, our strength, our mind, to love him with everything that we have. Romans eleven thirty six. for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Everything goes back to him and his glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, do all. For the glory of God. It's about loving God with all of our hearts. It's about glorifying God. Colossians 3.17 Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Do you joyfully submit to the Lordship of Christ in all areas of your life? All areas. Your personal life, your family, your school, your job, your team, your church, the governing authorities. Now you may say, Pastor Sean, you've asked some hard things this morning. You've asked me to pay my taxes without grumbling. You've asked me to pray for my leaders. You've asked me to submit to the government. You've asked me to give unconditional obedience to God. 
I'm walking out here thinking, man, that's a lot to deal with. I feel more depressed now than when I came in. You've given me a big list here. Let's ask the most important question. How can you do this? I could have ended the sermon here and you could have walked out there and going like, hmm, I've got a lot of things to do today. How am I going to do this? Let me give you a verse. 2 Peter 1, 3-4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He's granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. God has given you everything you need. Even Areas of submitting to the government. God has given you everything you need according to life and godliness. His divine power has given you everything you need because you've become a partaker of the divine nature. In other words, you've been given the Holy Spirit to live inside you to give you the power to live out the Christian life. So you have the power and the grace to do what God has called you to do. And what's the ultimate thing God has called you to do? To joyfully submit to Him as Lord. <laughs> Excuse me. <coughs> 1 Corinthians 12.3 Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The only way you can say Jesus is Lord is if the Holy Spirit has done a work in your heart. The only way you can submit to Jesus as Lord is by the Holy Spirit. The only way you can submit to the governing authorities and pay your taxes and pray for your leaders is because of the Holy Spirit in your heart. And so as we leave this place this morning, I want to remember the words of Abraham Kuyper. Let me read them again. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Today, Christ is saying to you and me, mine. You're mine. You belong to me. I'm your Lord. I'm your sovereign. You're mine. Now, this can be really frightening and unsettling that God is sovereign over all and he says, mine. It can be very frightening and very unsettling or it could be the greatest news that you've ever heard in your life because it brings you the greatest comfort. God is sovereign over all in your mind. That could be scary or God is sovereign over all in your mind. That could bring great comfort. And I pray today that it brings you great comfort that Jesus is sovereign over all. He's sovereign of the entire earth. He says, mine, it's mine. He says to your life, it's mine, you're his. And so as we leave this place, let's just remember, Jesus is Lord over all. And he's saying to all of us this morning, you are mine. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning and let's think about the things that we've seen this morning in the scriptures. And I'm going to allow you some time to reflect 
some time to process, some time to think about as you spend some time in silent prayer this morning. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you are sovereign over all and that you demand our ultimate allegiance, unconditional submission and worship to you as our God and King. And Jesus, you do say over the entire world, mine, it's mine. And you say over our hearts, mine. And Lord, we can resist that. We can try to fight it. We can say in our hearts, no, I want to be in charge. It's me. But Lord, we know the best place to be is to submit to you as Lord. So help us this week to walk out of this place with the power that you give us. Your divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Lord, help us to pray faithfully for our leaders. Lord, help us to be obedient citizens within reason. Help us to be active in praying and, and involved in the political process to, to change laws and to make this place reflect your values, Lord. And help us to always remember that God, you're Lord over all. And so help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Help us to joyfully submit. Give us the power this week to live under your Lordship. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.